Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word and that by Your Word You transform us for Your Spirit is there. Evermore change us, evermore heal us, evermore renew us that we would more and more become like the image of Christ who is Your true image, who is the one who has fulfilled Your will perfectly on our behalf. Make known to us the joy of our salvation this day. All of this we do ask through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's something funny about this parable. The funny part of this parable is that it's not really a parable in some ways. Typically, parables have one main idea that they put forward. This does not. This has lots going on in it. This parable tells us so much that for the early church, when they were reading this parable, they didn't look for one idea. They went so far as to allegorize every single detail of this, that every detail Jesus had carefully placed there in his telling in order to make known to us the truth, to make known to us what was wrong in this world, to make known to us his reality of what he was doing on our behalf. At times, the early church went too far with its allegorizing, where it had to find a little bit of detail for every single thing that the inn is the church and the innkeeper is the priest who cares for the people who come into the church and things like that. That might be a little too far in stretching the allegorizing, but... There is allegory going on. There is this aspect of this passage where the details do point us to a greater reality and that it's not just one idea that approaches us at the end. Yes, Jesus does say, go and do likewise to us this day. And so there is that parabolic singular meaning that Jesus is getting across to this man in front of him, this lawyer, to go and do the work of the Lord, to go and do the law. And there's a reason for why Jesus hammers home that point. Jesus isn't saying that this man can earn his salvation, but he's working toward breaking this man, causing this man to see that, yeah, he may think that I can, he can earn his salvation, but when he really puts the pedal to the metal, when the rubber meets the road for him, he is going to fail. And hopefully he will come to see more and more that he cannot keep up with the power of the law against him, the power that stands over him, that he will not be able to fulfill even the simplest aspects of the law in the way that God desires him to do. But at the moment of telling this story, this man is not there yet. In fact, when this man approaches Jesus, he comes up to him with deceptive questioning. There's a deception in this man's heart from the get-go. There in verse 25, Luke tells us that a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. He wanted to put Jesus to the test. He wanted to trick Jesus. He wanted to make him stumble to catch him in a moment of interpreting the law in a radically incongruent way. So he stands up to test Jesus. In fact, his, even his standing up is deceptive. In the ancient world, 
for one to stand up before the teacher is one to say, I am a student. I am coming as a disciple to you, and I have a question for you. So I assume that when it says that the lawyer stood up, that Jesus is here teaching a crowd of people, that he's talking to people, and they're all sitting down listening, being good students. But the good student then, when it's time to ask a question, will stand up before the teacher to put the question to the teacher. And so this man not only is coming to test Jesus, but he's coming and is going to ask a very deceptive question, but he's asking in a very deceptive way to begin with. He's presenting himself as a disciple, as a student, as someone who wants to learn from the teacher. But the reality is, he doesn't really want to learn from the teacher. He wants to have the teacher prove the thoughts he already has. And so he poses the question, this deceptive question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? As I've turned that question over and over in my head this week and read commentaries, it is a funny way to ask that question. He doesn't just come straight out and say, what do I have to do to earn my salvation, Jesus? Because that's what he's really asking, but he uses the word inherit, and that makes this question utter nonsense. What do you do when you inherit something? You just receive it. The person dies, and they have a will and testament, and they say, you get X, and therefore you get X, because that person was gracious and chose to give you a gift upon their death. So it's a deeply nonsensical way to even put this question, what do I have to do to inherit something? You just receive it. You sit down and you receive what God is giving to you. But this man has a twisted understanding of inheritance at this point. He sees inheritance as something he has to earn from God, that if God's going to give him something, he has to do something to get that. He has to earn it. He has to prove his worth and his value to receive that which God is willing to give by faith. And so this man asks the law question, and so Jesus turns to him and gives him law answers. The deceptive question is all about what do I have to do? And so Jesus asks him what is written in the law, and the man gives him a beautiful summary of the law. In fact, the one that we use every week. We quote it from a different part of the Gospels. We quote it coming off of Jesus' lips. But here this man gives a summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The man answers Jesus' question correctly. What does the law say? What do you read in it? So Jesus says, go do that then, and you will live. You will live by doing this law. You will live by doing this law. It's strange for us to hear that as gospel people, to be told by Jesus, to hear out of Jesus' mouth, go and do this law. But it's like I said, it has a double edge to it. On one hand, yes, we are called to do the law, but on the flip side, for this man, his heart is hardened. He wants to earn something, and so Jesus tells him, go and do what you think you're supposed to do. Go and do this great law, and you've summarized it perfectly. In fact, prior to Luke and prior to the Gospels, prior to Jesus, no one had summarized the law like this. No one had set up this summary of the law. And it's funny how it's set up because... It starts with love God with all of your being and then love your neighbor. When you flip back to the Old Testament to the Torah, that's out of order. 
the canonical order of those commandments is love your neighbor, then it gets around to saying love God. That there's a canonical order and typically that's how they would quote things. When they are laying out things that you are called to do, they would lay them out in order according to how they appear in the Torah. And so already this is flipping things around. It's flipping the historical order of the readings by putting the later reading first. But there's a reason for that. It's because it's the most important aspect of fulfilling the law here. You have to love God before you can love your neighbor. If you don't love God, then your loving of your neighbor is going to lead you to hate your neighbor. You're going to despise your neighbor. Even though you think he has need, even though you think there is necessity to help, if your love is being sustained by your own being, if your love is being sustained by your neighbor's response, by the needy one's response back to you, your love will turn to hate. If your love is dependent on you yourself alone, it will break you. It cannot be sustained. It will be worn out and wither up and die. After all, go out and help people. Go out and show them love. Go out and show them care. People that don't know you. And try to sustain it on your own. People will reject you. They'll turn away from you. They'll get upset because if they think you're only helping them for the sake of helping them, then they'll consider that you think that they're a charity case, that there's something wrong with them. People don't want to receive charity if they think that you're only doing it because they're needy. But if there's something underlying that love, if there's something that sustains those actions that is beyond you and outside of yourself, that love will keep existing. That love will continue to grow. That love will continue to prosper and overflow toward others. It must be sustained from somewhere else. And so before you can ever love your neighbor, before you can ever love your neighbor, you must first turn and love God. There must be an attachment to God. There must be a commitment to God. There must be a turning to Him and His ways. Because God is love and He will pour His love into your hearts and out of your hearts will overflow that love. It's kind of what Romans 5 says. God has poured His love into our hearts by giving us His Spirit. God's love will flow through you to others. Your love is God's love for others and His love will increase your love. God will work in you in order to enable you to go out to a needy world, to bring to that needy world the care and the compassion and the mercy that it needs. And so this flipping the law around in this way, quoting it backwards, so to speak, gets at the heart of this deceptive questioning. This man wants to earn his salvation, but he doesn't realize that he can't. And so Jesus still looks at him and says, you've answered correctly, go and do this, go and do this, go and you will live. Go and do this law that you have presented to me. Go and love God with your whole being and go and love your neighbor as yourself and you'll get eternal life. It's what Jesus says to this lawyer because this lawyer is convinced that he can do it. If we love perfectly, then eternal life is ours to have. If we can keep the law perfectly as God is perfect, then yes, you will get eternal life. If you are perfect, you get eternal life. But 
What it really means is if you're able to live a perfect life, then you've already got the eternal life that comes with that perfect life. If you're already living perfectly, then you're not having to earn anything because you already have that which you desire. But we can't do that. We all know it's impossible to keep the law. And it's not the problem with the law. The law isn't the problem. It's us, right? It's our brokenness. If we weren't broken inside, then we could follow the law. If you're not broken, then you've already got eternal life, which means that you're not fallen, which means you're not a sinner, which means that you are automatically keeping the law because you're not a sinner. But that's not what we are. We're marred and we're broken, and we're already behind the eight ball. When we realize that we're supposed to keep the law, we're already in a deficit, one that we can never dig out of. We're so deeply indebted that we'll never pay back what we owe. We'll never overcome that which we have done wrong. Because everything we do from that point on will be tainted by the wrongdoing that has come before it. And so Jesus puts it to him, do this and you will live because it will cause the man to realize he's dead already. It will cause him to realize he has no life in his own self if he tries to go and fulfill the law as it is written. But the man wants to flip it all on its head and ask another deceptive question, who is my neighbor? Because again, he wants to justify. He wants to prove that he is right. He wants to prove that he is good enough to be saved. He wants to prove that he isn't a sinner, even though he is. So Jesus says, go and do this and you will live. And the man says, well, well, before I can even start doing that, who, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Because it's a legitimate debate. I mean, if you go read Rabbi so-and-so, and when he's talking about Leviticus 19, it's talking about there at the beginning of Leviticus 19, it's saying, love your neighbor because your neighbor is your Israelite brother. So does that mean that I only have to love my Israelite neighbor, Jesus? Oh, but then there's this other rabbi later on who says something at the end of Leviticus 19. It says something about the sojourner among you being your neighbor. So I'm really confused as to who my neighbor is, Jesus. That's what's behind that, who is my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? He's trying to muddy the water because he wants to try to make Scripture look like it contradicts itself in some way. To try to, try to get it all lined up in a nice, neat little order that proves that he's keeping the law from the get-go. So he wants to justify himself. And so Jesus tells him a story about making up for everyone else. Making up for everyone else is what happens in this story because that's what the Good Samaritan has to do. He tells him a story about a man who goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's not an easy walk. It's close to 20 miles between the two cities, and it's all rugged terrain. There's a reason why this story is about robbers springing out of nowhere and beating up a man. It's because that was a normal occurrence between Jerusalem and Jericho. There's always, it's a trail that goes down a mountain, and so it's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so there's all kinds of switchbacks where people can hide. And so here's this man traveling, and robbers jump out. They strip him and beat him and depart, leaving him half dead in the ditch. That's where he starts out. He's already, he's having people attack him and steal everything from him, but it gets worse. A priest goes by from Jerusalem to Jericho. Most likely this priest has just finished his service in the temple. The priest had to go do a couple of weeks service every once in a while, and so the priest is probably gone done his service, and now he's returning back to his home in Jericho. And what does he do? He passes on by. He ignores this man who is lying in the ditch. There's all kinds of reasons that he can ignore him. 
There's cleanliness laws. If he touches a dead body, because he can't tell if he's alive or dead, then he's tainted. He's unclean, and he has to go through a rigorous cleansing ceremony in order to then be able to continue serving as a priest. There's also this aspect of not being able to identify what kind of person he is. Is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? Is he a Jew of my tribe, or is he a Jew of that tribe? Because guess what? Just like today, we identify people by their clothing and by their words, by how they speak. Go to New York City and have a conversation with people, and they'll assume most of us are dumb hicks because we have a southern drawl. They identify us as being from the south because they hear how we speak. If we don't speak, then people might not know we're from the south. People assume because we're from a certain place that we're too poor to understand that we're not smart enough to catch on. But we do it amongst ourselves too, right? When we encounter someone with a thicker accent than our own, with more southern drawl, we assume, well, well, you're from the mountains, and so you're a little bit lower down on the scale, right? You're not quite as sharp as I am, because you've got that southern, you've got a thicker drawl. We all get assumptions based on how people speak. And after all, if we hear someone from the north hanging out around here, we were like, what, what are you doing in the south now? Why are you coming? Why are you moving down here, northerner person? We do this. It's, our, it's just what we do naturally. We confront people and we make assumptions based on what they're saying. And this priest can't do that today. He sees this guy laying in the ditch, half dead, unconscious, not able to speak, not wearing any clothes. And he's like, I, I don't know what tribe he's part of. I don't know if he's a Gentile. I don't know if he's a Pharisee. I don't know if he's a scribe. I don't know if he's an Essene. I don't know what this guy is. So I'm free to not help him because I only have to help those who interpret the law the way I interpret it. That's what's going on probably in the back of this priest's mind. He follows the first interpretation of the law that says that you only have to help your fellow Israelite, which then gets delineated to your fellow Israelite who already agrees with you in everything. But then the cleanliness laws, that's what's so ironic is the cleanliness laws aren't there to punish you. They're there to remind you of the work that comes with this world, of the actions that happen in this world will leave you tainted. As you move through this world, you will get dirty and you must be cleansed regularly. It's costly to go through this rigorous cleansing. He may lose up to a week's pay. He may not be able to participate and receive the tithe of harvest that comes regularly to the Levites and to the priests especially because he's undergoing cleansing and therefore he can't serve. So it's costly for him to have to go through those cleansing laws but it's not sin for him to have to go through them. It's part and parcel of life. But the irony is that he uses God's good law to shirk obeying God's law. He uses God's good law in order to avoid the very duties that that law has called him to. To avoid dealing with some aspects of the law, it enables him to avoid fulfilling the core aspects because he doesn't want to have to go through the trouble of getting cleansed and going through all that. He's like, I'm not going to do this other thing that's more important. I'm not going to help this poor, half-dead man on the side of the road because it's going to cost me too much. It's going to be too hard for me to keep doing what I'm doing. That is an unbelievable abuse of the law. Because I don't want to do this other thing in the law, I'm not going to do this more important thing. He uses the law to excuse his inaction. 
And the Levite does the same thing. He sees the man, and he passes on the other side, following the lead of the priest. The priest is the main guy at the temple, and the Levites are their servants. They help serve at the temple. And so he's following the lead of this other man. But then we get to the surprised person who shows up, the Samaritan, who makes up for everyone else. The Samaritan is the one who picks up the ball and runs with it, and he undoes everything that's been done to this man. The man was ignored by the Levite, the, one of the people who could have easily gotten down and helped him. He was ignored by the priest who was most likely riding on a donkey, and he was robbed by these men. Three terrible actions were done to this man, and the Samaritan makes up for all of it. First of all, he has compassion. Compassion. That's connected. That word is connected to your guts. It means that he feels this deep down sense and urge to help this person in need. It's deep down inside of himself, down to the very core of his being, that he feels pity and desires to show mercy to this man. And this is where he really makes up for everything that's been done to this man. He gets down in the ditch with him. The Levite could have done that, but he didn't. He binds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine upon his wounds to help them heal. Then he lifts the man up and puts him on his own donkey and carries him forward. The priest would have had a donkey because he's well off. And so the thing the priest could have done was he could have put the man on his donkey and carried him. But he makes up for the priest in action. He makes up for the Levites in action by binding the wounds and putting him on a donkey and carrying him the rest of the way to Jericho. Like I said, the space between Jerusalem and Jericho is desolate. There's no ends along the way. So wherever this happened, he has to finish the journey on into Jericho to find an inn. And what does he do when he gets to that inn? He stays with him overnight, continues to watch over him, and then he goes to the innkeeper and gives him money and says, use this to take care of this man, and if you have to spend more, I'll pay you back when I come back through. He does everything. He makes up for the fact that this man has nothing the robber stole everything from him, so he pays his bill, and he pays his future bills that will be incurred as he heals and gets over this abuse that's been done to him. He overcomes everything that has been done to this man. That's a beautiful part of the story that I hadn't fully grasped until this week. This man undoes everything that was done through compassion, through action, through getting down in the dirt and helping him. And so what's the moral of the story? Go and do likewise. Who's the one who acted as a neighbor? Jesus asks the lawyer. The lawyer's like, the one who showed mercy. He won't even say the Samaritan. It's the one who showed mercy, Jesus. So he got the point. The idea isn't that you get to decide who your neighbor is. The idea is that you are called to be the neighbor, to go out and help those you encounter. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do this very thing you're supposed to do. Coming back to that very idea, do this and you will live. The double-edged sword of, yeah, we're called to obey the law, but our obeying of the law doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It means, in fact, that we will fail regularly at doing it. And so Jesus is hammering with the law, go and do this, to crush this man, to break him and to cause him to see his legalism, to cause him to see his error in understanding how salvation operates and works. But what's more, 
is who the Samaritan really is in this story. The Samaritan is Jesus. The Samaritan is the one who acts as Jesus acts in this world. But it's not just that it feels good to say that the Samaritan is Jesus. There's, there's a key word in there that tells us it has to be Jesus that the Samaritan is pointing to. It's that word, compassion. Throughout the Gospels, this Greek word is only used to refer to Jesus. It either is, Jesus had compassion, or someone said, have mercy on us, show us pity, son of David, show us pity, Jesus, and he does. And in all the parables that Jesus tells, and all the stories he tells, when that word gets used, it's used of the Christ figure. It's used of the father figure. In the prodigal son, it is the father who shows compassion, and we all know the father points us to God in that story. Likewise here, this key word, the Samaritan had compassion, tells us that this Samaritan is Jesus. And the Samaritan does exactly what Jesus does for us. The Samaritan gets down into the ditch. He comes down into the depths of dirt and filth to take care of this man. He binds his wounds. He pours oil and wine upon him to bring him healing. He then carries him to the inn and covers all of his cost. He goes the full way with him. He does everything to bring about his healing. And that is what Jesus does for us. The Son of God comes down and puts on human flesh and comes down into this mire. He comes down into this mucky place. He comes down into this filthy world in order to lay hold of us and bind us up, in order to bring us new life, in order to bring us complete and total healing. The Samaritan made sure that this man's bills were covered. He made sure everything was done for him, and that is what Jesus does for us this day. As he tells us to go and do likewise, he tells us to do that because he has already done that. He has gone and done likewise already for us. Jesus has accomplished our salvation totally. He has accomplished our healing completely. He has accomplished our renewal to the fullest extent possible. The Samaritan is Jesus here to bind us up and to bring us healing. Jesus binds us up. He unites himself to us. He brings us that complete and perfect healing that as we are lying dead in the ditch, we're not just half dead in the ditch like the man on the road. We're totally dead, laying in that ditch with nothing to offer, nothing to do, nothing to give. But Jesus lifts us up and carries us into the kingdom. He lifts us up and brings us that true healing that we need when we follow after him. And he calls us to then go and do likewise because he has healed us and enabled us to do likewise. We will fail and we will stumble, we will trip up. But it's not out of our own love. It's out of the love that God has given to us because we have received God's love. We have received the love of Jesus in us that we are enabled to go and do likewise, to begin sputtering forward, doing good deeds, doing good acts, following the law that God has given to us. But it's only because Jesus came down in the ditch. It's only because Jesus came down into the filth with us and brought us our healing, paid for our healing, paid for our rest, paid for our renewal. 
And so this parable isn't just getting across this ethical point, that's secondary of going and doing like the Samaritan, of going and being a neighbor. But the bigger point is the Samaritan is Jesus who gets down in the ditch and accomplishes all the healing that this person can't do, who makes up for all the wrong that's been done to us. As we have been robbed, as we have been ignored, as we have been walked past, the Samaritan gets down and binds up and undoes the brokenness that's been done to us and gives us everything that we need to be healed. Jesus does that for us today. Jesus does that for you, and he does it for me, and he does it for all who come to him. So return to Jesus and look at the great joy of salvation that he has placed upon you. Look at the great redemption he has given to you to heal you of your brokenness, to heal you of your sinfulness, to heal you of your waywardness, to heal you of the things done to you, to heal you of the things that needed to be done for you so that you can be whole in Christ. And to be whole in Christ is to have his eternal life. To be whole in Christ is to truly inherit eternal life because being whole in Christ means you have received the gift that is given freely. And so inherit the kingdom by receiving it freely, by receiving it by faith, by receiving it by grace, by receiving it because it is joy to the Father to give it to you this day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.